0: Take time to be behold So
1: Again, it's good to be here. And I've enjoyed the special singing these evenings, especially when it's family. I think there's something extra special about a family singing together. I I like that. We uh, have another message to share tonight, but we haven't been doing anything for the children yet. I'd like to invite you children, if you consider yourself one, to come forward. Uh, Do you do that here? I guess you do sometimes. I have a little children's class this evening before we start our message. All right, well the reason I wanted to share something with you children this evening is because it goes along pretty much with what we're going to talk about later, but uh, I'd like to tell you at first, and then later your parents can hear about it. There's one verse I'm going to look at, and I'm going to tell two little stories. The verse is in uh, Proverbs. I want to ask you a question after this verse, and see how you would do it. But it says this, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Now when you do something sort of bad and maybe your parents don't like it and they don't know it yet what should you do about that should you hide it what should you do what would you do you tell them it always works better that way doesn't it you do something wrong and you tell your parents it tends to go better than if you don't they just find out by themselves right well i always like when my dad would tell me stories for some reason i like when they he would tell stories about when he was bad and my children always like when i tell stories about when i was bad And uh, I want to tell you about the last spanking I ever got. I won't tell you how old I was, but uh, my dad saw my schoolwork one day and he said, listen, your writing is so sloppy and so hard to read, you're going to have to get this better. I'm going to have to spank you. And so, okay, I tried for a while and I still don't have good handwriting. But uh, after a while I got sloppier and lazier about writing neatly in my books. And I uh, finally got so bad. the end of school was almost here, almost like it is right now, school is almost over. And I was getting so sloppy again in my school work I, I would try really hard not to have homework because I knew if I had to take books, old damn might find out. And so one evening I had homework. know how it happened, I had homework and I somehow didn't get it done that night after school. So next morning I decided I'm going to get up really early and I'm going to go out into the shop and I'm going to do my homework out in the shop. In case he comes in from milking, he won't find me doing my homework. Well, I was out in the shop with the light on about 6 o'clock in the morning, doing my homework, got the workbench. And uh, Dad comes along to turn the light on, the lights on, me. they didn't know why. here I was in the shop doing my homework. What are you doing your homework out here for? Oh, I don't know, just to do my homework in the shop. I don't know. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me look at your books. So he started looking. And it was not good. And he said, well, we talked about this. And, uh... That's how I got my last thinking. You know what happened? After that I felt so much better inside because Dad knew it was all taken care of. I'll tell you one more little story. It's not about me this time. There was, a, I read this in the Guatemala Magazine, a little story down in Guatemala. But There was a boy and a girl that were visiting their grandmother. And this is about a dead duck. The boy and the girl were visiting their grandmother and playing out by the pond one day. The little boy picks up a stone and throws the stone across the pond. And it happens that it hit Grandma's duck right here in the neck, and it killed her. And so here's the boy and the girl and the dead duck. And the boy looked at the house, and nobody was looking, and so they got the duck and dug a little hole and buried it, covered it up. And he told her, now you're not going to tell, and I'm going to tell, okay? Okay. So it came lunchtime, and Grandma says to the little girl, I'd like you to come and help set the table. And she told the little boy, you set the table, or I'm going to tell Grandma. And he said, Grandma, I'm going to set the table. So he went and set the table for her. And after lunch, it's time to wash the dishes. Little girl, I'd like you to wash the dishes. And she told her little brother, you wash the dishes. I'm going to tell Grandma about that duck." And he said, Grandma, I'm going to wash the dishes today. So he washed the dishes. The next day, little girl, I'd like you to sweep the floor. You sweep the floor, I'm going to tell. And this went on for a couple days like that. Everything she was supposed to do, she made him do it because of that duck. So finally one day he just couldn't stand me I went to his grandma and said, listen, I need to tell you about what happened to your duck. We were out playing by the pond and I threw a stone and happened to kill the duck. And she said, uh, I was looking out the window when it happened and I saw you do it, but I was going to see how long you're going to let your little sister rule over you that way because of that dead duck. <laughs> ah, he went not all happy. Came lunchtime, the Grandma says, little girl, I want you to come set the table. And she looked at him and said, You better set the table. I'm going to tell grandma what the do. And he said, Go ahead and tell her. She knows anyway. And that's the end of the story. So, covering up our sin, what does that do? Does it help our problems? It makes them worse, doesn't it? And so it's always good to be honest with what we've done. That's a little story. Thank you. You've got your parents. All right, now the grown-ups class. Last night we talked about the goodness and severity of God, both sides of God. Goodness toward his children that are right toward him, and goodness toward those that are still on the outside but have access to come into the kingdom. But severity toward one group of people, and those are the ones that reject his solution. And tonight I'd like to talk to the ones of us on the inside of this kingdom because coming from the outside to the inside is a large step, but, but the battle isn't over. The battle is just beginning when we come into the kingdom of God. And the temptation and the discouragement and the lust and the uh, distractions in life are probably just as real as they were on the outside. The temptations and the pressures are there. And uh, we need to know how to face that and deal with it. And Paul writes this in Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, But God be thanked, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. And I'm thankful this is the past tense. Having been made free from sin, we can now serve righteousness. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to get untangled from sin and out from under the slavery of sin. And I don't believe anyone who has... No one except those who's experienced that and truly understand what a blessing that is. But this is not past tense for everyone. I believe even some people that are in the kingdom of God, in some area or another, still experience issues like this in their life. Certain areas of, uh, of bondage. Maybe areas of, of severe struggle. And there's some uh, debate about this. How free from sin does God want us to be? Uh, this concept of holiness and holy living scares some people. It feels like a burden to some people. Now Paul said this, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now the question is, how much fornication or how much stealing and how much lying could you permit in your life and God still be okay with that? Uh, how much covetousness is okay? If you would only steal 2% of the time, would that be acceptable? What, what limit, what does God expect? Uh, a preacher from India, Zach Poonen, uh, some of you might have heard some of his messages, he puts it this way uh, Sin is sickness and disease, and holiness is health. And uh, Satan wants us to believe differently. He wants us to believe that. It's not that way, it's the opposite. But the question is, how healthy do you want to be? If you go to a doctor for a a, uh, tuberculosis problem or something like that, pneumonia problem, how how healthy do you want to be when you come back? Uh, If you have cancer, how cured do you want to be? Is 50% okay? Um, When Paul writes, and now you've put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, it's almost like saying, be free from all cancer and all leukemia and all infections and all kidney stones. Is, would that be okay with you? That'd be okay with all of us. We like health, and God's will for our health, our life, is spiritual health. Uh, free from sin, servants of righteousness. We don't want to be under bondage to it. When God says, "Be holy as I am holy," it's almost like a saying, "I want you to be spiritually as healthy as I am." And Jesus prayed, "Deliver us from evil." We need His help. To stay well. Now many things in life are simple choices. If you want a drink, you just go get one. If you want to talk to a friend, you pick up a telephone and do it. If you have your driver's license and want to go to the library, you just go. Those things aren't hard to decide. You just do them. But dealing with temptation is different than that because it involves a different area of our life. It's not that easy. It's something beyond simple choices we make. Although they are our choices. Uh, there's the law of bondage, the sin to, to reckon with. There's the will of the flesh, will of the mind that are in conflict. That's the whole Romans 7 chapter. I believe all of us know what it's like to struggle. and The scripture talks about the sin that does so easily beset us. And I hope we know what it's like to be victorious. We know what it's like to face a temptation and overcome it. We probably all would know what it's like to fail and fall short. And know what we should have done, but not measure up and fall short of that. Now John in his letter to the seven churches had some encouraging things to say. He also had some honest assessments of what the church was like. There's a couple of phrases common to each. One example verse is this one in Revelation 3.21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcome and am set down with my Father in his throne. And there were negative assessments. There was lukewarmness, and there was idolatry, and there was uh, false doctrine and decay of spiritual health. But the one thing I see in common in all of these letters, no matter how bleak the situation was, there was always something in that church worth encouraging and worth, worth uh, trying to revive. And there was something good in each one. There's at least some possibilities there. There was still hope. And... Uh, The concept that I see in these letters is this. Even though the whole church is going in a wrong direction, you don't have to. Even though the ones around you are doing the wrong thing or making wrong choices, you don't have to. You can make a different one. Uh, There are special rewards for faithfulness. Notice in these, we don't have time to look at this in depth, but the picture in each letter is corporate. It's the whole church. It's the consideration and the assessment of the whole group. But the encouragement is personal. To the church write this, but to him that overcome a singular, I will give these things. And that's a real encouragement to me because no matter what the spiritual environment around us is like or what it's becoming, uh, there's something you and I can do to be overcomers and to, to finish our life where we need to be. We've entered this Christian life, we want to finish it standing up, finish it victoriously. What does overcoming look like? I've often thought of two fighters in a ring when they start hitting each other. One of them is going to end up laid out on the canvas, and the other one is going to walk out with his arms in the air. That's what, that's what it looks like to be victorious. And uh, Christian life is different than that, maybe. We have nothing to prove to our enemy. We would love to see our enemy, the devil, laid out on the canvas, cold. But it's not quite like that. Uh, I think some of these guys, if I was in a ring with them, I'd feel like I was victorious if I stayed alive. And uh, we don't have to prove anything to our enemy, but we do have to finish standing up. Whether we have to get up time after time but if you finish the day today and you're still walking with the Lord and you're still in a relationship with Him and you're still standing and you're still fruitful, it's a victorious day. And tomorrow you go out and do it all over again. The day after you do it again. And that's victorious living day by day, maintaining relationship and uh, overcoming in our, our struggles. And when we do fail, knowing what to do about it. That's part of a victorious life as well. Defeat. Sometimes it's spectacular. There's some people that have ended their, their Christian life in a crash and burn situation. It's a big deal. But more often it's more of a quiet, subtle thing, just a herding off the way of life into something else. But every day Satan has something in mind for you, and every day your goal is to finish standing and finish with the Lord doing what He wants you to do. As we face our temptations and our struggles, we need to realize that our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with spiritual wickedness in high places. It's easy sometimes to get our focus misplaced. We think our battle is with the angry neighbor, or the, the, the bad customer we just had, or the, the politicians, or the provocative person, or whatever. We think it's people. And if we, if we look at the person as our enemy, um, that's a false assumption. We've missed it. Now the people that provoke us and the people that provide temptation for us are often just as much the victim of sin as anyone else. It's, it's Satan that's the master and using these people as a tool to affect our lives. But our, our enemy is a master disguise, The Scripture tells us that he's like a roaring lion. I think one reason that the one way he comes at us is to hurt us into a corner and convince us that there's nothing to do but surrender. Uh, I don't know if you've ever found this way, but a day in which everything possibly can go wrong goes wrong, and you think you can't handle one more thing, and then something else goes wrong. It's almost like you're cornered, and he's roaring at you one more time, trying to force you to do something you shouldn't do, go about it the wrong way. He also comes as an angel of light to seduce you. He doesn't care how he gets you off the path of life. He can scare you off force you off or seduce you off It's all the same to him Angel of light must be a beautiful thing and uh, we're often tempted to think how can something so beautiful be so wrong Be careful what you listen to because there's some very beautiful things out there with, with such a sinister wrong message Be careful what you read. There's books out there with double meanings. And uh, Ruth Montgomery is a person that writes or has written many books through automatic writing. At least that's what she says. The thoughts come and they just are put on paper. In fact, I read somewhere that Jonathan Livingston Siegel has written that way. We have to carefully discern New Age parallels to Christianity. Uh... New Age things, spirituality, often has such a parallel to Christianity but with a twist. It's always man creating his own solutions and man the motivation behind his own ascent into better things and the control of his own destiny. And it's a dangerous thing because undiscerning people might even promote it as a spiritual resource. One thing we can believe about our enemy is he's already been defeated. And we can face Him with that perspective. At Calvary on the cross, the war was won. But the battle continues, and what does lie in the balance are millions of souls, including yours and mine. And it makes a difference how we approach our, our battle and our life and our struggles and our temptations, because that's what He's trying to do is get us off this path of life. I'd like to invite you to Ephesians chapter 2 this evening and read a few verses there that show us, or at least help me understand, the method He uses to keep the world under his control and influence. (laughs) Ephesians 2 verse 1 And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now this is past tense also. But it gives us a picture of the kinds of things that influenced our life under a, a godless influence. Before we were born again, I don't know what our experience was, but these are some things that he uses to influence and control people. Now see, three things here. The course of the world is one, and the spirit of evil is one, and the desires of the flesh and the mind is one. These are three things that he uses to get his influence into people's lives. I like to talk about this course of the world first. When I think of a course, I think of a current, a direction, something that started somewhere and is ending somewhere. There's a direction going on. And society is like that. Society is not static. It's not holding still. There's a movement from what it once was to where where it's headed, where it's going to be. And it's interesting for me to notice that even society, whatever level of understanding it has or doesn't have about spiritual things, but it does have a certain moral standard. Uh, Lines they say they wouldn't cross. Uh, Morality is one. Uh, What's indecent in public is not considered indecent on the airwaves. You can do that in the privacy of your home and that's not indecency, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, Human life, there's not many days that separate a legal abortion from a murder, but there's a line somewhere, they put that line there, and on one side of it's wrong, the other side is right. Dress, Uh, what's totally acceptable out on the beach would be considered totally unacceptable in Walmart, even if it's the same people that were on the beach and now they're in Walmart, same group of people. Uh, those are lines that are drawn that people say they wouldn't cross. But those lines are always subject to change. If you would think back to the beginnings of the, the rock movement and the uh, shock that a lot of that caused in our country and other countries and the, uh, some countries even outlawed it, but if you would hear the Beatles in the doctor's office today, you would think, you know, that sounds almost nice compared to what's normally around there. And... Uh, Elvis Presley, that sounds really tame. Sounds, sounds uh, quite almost enjoyable in comparison. What, what changed? Well, we're 40, 40 or 50 years downstream. And uh, society has shifted, and tastes have shifted, and and level of acceptability has shifted. Uh, another thing that's shifted, and this is a hot item in the news, is just expression of sexuality. Uh, I was reading today that in 1972, the first challenge to the inability for two men to marry uh, was taken to the Supreme Court, the first Supreme Court ruling on this thing. And it was tossed out with one sentence. Uh, I forget what the sentence was, a very short ruling. They just weren't going to hear it. And now we're 45 years downstream, state after state, capitulating to this. And the Supreme Court set to rule one more time, there might be the final ruling, depending on what they say. What changed? Society was not there yet in 1972. The society is much different 45 years later. There's a current there, a direction. And even people that recognize the change and see where it was and where it's headed, many of these people lament and wish they could change it, but they can't do anything about it. And, uh, I believe that one reason is that Satan being the god of this world is influencing the course and the direction and is motivating behind many of these things. And in times past we lived according to this course but now we've come out of it. It takes a living fish to hold his own in a current. A dead one just floats along with the current. Society has influenced the church in many ways too. And I remember as a youth Uh, looking at changes and shifts in our churches and uh, questions about different things. And I remember asking myself, you know, what's the big deal about changes and in the way we do things and music and dress and little changes here and there and what's the point? Can't we take a group or a style or something and just accept or reject it on face value? And, uh, Couldn't we just let each generation decide for themselves and uh, let them make up their minds? But I finally began to realize that it's not just about face value. It's about a current, a flow, a direction. And I was fortunate enough to grow up beside the Stanton River. I pity any young man that wasn't able to do that. But right where we live, there's a very quiet part of the river. You could look at that and uh, take a snapshot of it. You almost think it was a lake. You could hear the rapids downstream, but... Things were so calm and so quiet right there. But if you looked long enough, things moved. And they kept moving. And it was a river, it wasn't a lake. And I saw music trends moving. And I saw dress things moving. And I did something, probably I shouldn't have one time in a church, it was not this one, somewhere else. But just looked at, compared mothers and daughters for a couple of minutes. Uh, covering style, sizes. And every one that I counted, probably eight or ten of them, Larger, smaller. Larger, smaller. And you would look at that and I would not have been able to say, you know, this one's right and this one's wrong. I wouldn't have been able to say that. And there's many things like that. But I realized this is not a lake, it's a river. It's moving. And I finally realized what we see right now, tonight, is simply a snapshot of where we are right now. But we came from somewhere and we're going to somewhere. This just happens to be where we are right now. And I know we could take this too far. I, I, uh, I'm not advocating changelessness. I think sometimes changes help. Sometimes there's better application. Sometimes there's better ways of, of applying Scripture. And I abhor the idea that maybe application would become as important as principle. We need to keep a distinction in our minds between what Scripture says and our way of living it out today because sometimes that does need some adjustment. When we talk about nonconformity, why be so different? Why is that a struggle for us? We need to understand that there's a subtle force trying to force us as a church and you as a believer into a mold that you don't belong in. It's, it's, a, it's a mold that has molded society and, and the God of the world is behind it. We need to be aware of that pressure when you go shopping and when you go to Bible school and when you surf the web. There's a, there's a subtle force that's attempting to mold people in a certain direction. And there's two ways Satan loves to trap us. If he could get us to cross the line, he would have won something. But if he can move the line, then we're confused altogether because we don't know where to come back to. And it's a tragic thing to lose an individual from the church of Christ. But it's a more tragic thing to lose the whole church because if the whole church goes together and uh, loses out together, there's... There's a loss of orientation about right and wrong unless we can come back to this book and and decide again what Scripture says and how this is going to be lived out. Now that's the course of this world. That's one of the ways Satan uses. I'd like to talk about another one tonight. Maybe this is more close to home. The second method that Satan used to control people when it says here, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, that's what he uses. Now James says this in James 1.14, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. There's two words in that that verse, temptation and lust. Now temptation is the world's problem. You go out there, they've invented everything to tickle any sense and to satisfy any urging that you might have. It's out there. They're expert at developing and and making things that just uh, please people quite well. And that's their problem. It's all out there. The world invented it. it is theirs. But lust is your problem. This word lust is basically concupiscence, which I believe means the desire for forbidden things, the things that are off limits, inner inner longing for that. Now, temptation and lust work together like poles on a magnet. It's like north and south. when, When lust in a person... Meets the temptation that is after is like click, and that's that's how they work together, and uh, tremendous force. And Satan, I believe, knows that his biggest ally lives in you and walks with you all the time. It's lust, it's it's concupiscence, whatever the old nature desires. That's how he gets your attention. Now, the big the question that we need to face tonight is this: In our battles and temptations we face, who has the advantage? Him or you. When He comes at you with a temptation and it awakens something in you, who's going to win? Who has the advantage? There's a scriptural principle that helps me understand how this outcome works. Uh, John 8.34, Jesus said it this way, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. And then 2.19 of 2 Peter says, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. So there's a bondage factor, there's a, a servant factor when a person is used to living in sin that sets up a repeat occurrence of the same kinds of things. I can't verify if this story is true. I, it was given as a possible historical fact, but it, could, it might not be but of a king that was overthrown by his brother, I believe. This is sort of a corpulent fellow. Uh, loved to eat, and he was, had a man of lots of appetite. And this, uh, his brother was sort of kind to him. Uh, he built a room around this fat king and left a door in the room that was open, but it was a small one. And he was too large to fit out the door. Now, if he would have just slimmed down a while, he could have probably gotten out. But every day he was fed things. Chickens and pies and roasts and whatever he liked. And every day he just did what he enjoyed the most. And he lived in in that room the rest of his life and died in there. He was not a prisoner of the room. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. And that's a little bit what this bondage factor looks like. We're free to choose a master, but we're not free to choose the consequence of that first choice the one that chooses to practice sin and yields his members to obey and of whom we're overcome. That's decides in a large measure who's going to be the overcomer in our struggles, in our temptations. Bondage begins in many ways. Sometimes curiosity. You're just paging the radio and you come across what you might enjoy and surfing the internet and you're running the things you sort of are interested in and... Uh, sometimes it's pure pressure. I think sometimes sin or temptation doubles its appeal when it's presented by a trusted friend. And that, that doubles its uh, influence. Often it's practiced in secret. and tightens its grip there. But the result of that is always bondage to something. If we're brought into that and served that way. Now what is bondage? When I think of bondage, I think of sin not being a choice anymore. It's simply a reaction. Um... Here's Rich, and I don't know if Rich has ever drunk an alcohol, I doubt it. I won't put him on the spot and ask. But if Rich would be put in a room here with an open bottle of Jack Daniels on the table, and nobody else around, and uh, he's going to look at that thing and think, uh, I'm curious, some people like that. What would it be like? Curiosity. We, we might all be, have a little bit of curiosity. Um, no one's watching, nobody ever know. But for Rich, decision kicks in. And he thinks this way. What are the consequences if I do? What are the consequences if I don't? And is it worth it? And he'd probably say, you know, it's not really worth it. He would walk out and leave it alone. It doesn't bother him at all. But I know people, if they're put in a situation like that, there's no choosing to be done. That choice was made a long time ago. I've seen men in the grip of hangover and all they want is another drink. They know what's going to come out if they do it. And uh, there's no thought process. There's no decision making to be done. It's it's an automatic response to what they're in bondage to. If you're by yourself and find a, a pornographic magazine, you can tell by the cover what it is. Your decision process kicks in. What are the consequences if I do? What are the consequences if I don't? Is it worth it or isn't it? And I hope you would say it's not worth it. Because some people don't have any choice to make, it's already been made. They know the shame of it. They know the uh, regret. And they know the, the sh- what, what happens. And, and they do it anyway. It's a bondage. Bondage is sort of like the life of Samson. He went to Timnath, sort of surfing the towns and paging through Philistia and seeing what's down there. And he ran into a woman there and he asked to marry her. And so his parents got her... De- uh, I forget her name, but this, this lady. Now this person was taken from her from him. After he went to kill some Philistines to get some raiment to pay off his bet, his new wife was given to the best man. So he went on to Gaza and found a a harlot over there. Then he went down to the valley of Sorek and found Delilah there. Got married to her. And uh, that's when he lost his strength and lost his freedom and lost everything he had down in the valley of Sorek, Philistia. And he was made a slave grinding corn for the Philistines. And bondage is that way, city to city, girl to girl, fun to fun, pleasure to pleasure. But it also is blindness and bondage and, and hard work and difficult things. Dawn to dusk under the grindstone for the Philistines. And every day he was made to grind, no eyes, no discernment, and every day he did it for his enemies, under the yoke. See so when you meet the devil's temptations, Whether or not you're victorious depends a lot on whether you're in bondage or whether you're free. A person in bondage is a predictable outcome unfiltered internet, uh, access to TV or drugs or alcohol, whatever yours might be. Uh, There's a clicking sound as lust and temptation come together. And people like that think they're free to do what they want, but in reality, they're not even doing it for themselves. They're doing it for the enemy, they're grinding for the devil. That's what bondage looks like. and I'm thankful for what Jesus said in His first sermon in Luke 4.18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now wouldn't have Samson liked a verse like that? Wouldn't he have loved this verse? The devil had robbed him poor. There's a word for him. Broken hearted, there's healing. Shut up in his own prison, there's freedom from that. Jesus is the breaker of chains and freer of captives. Now I want to ask a question. If this verse is true and it's still powerful today, then why was Romans 7 ever written? If you know Romans 7, it's the story of we've all experienced. I know what I need to do and I can't do it. And I, I know what I shouldn't do and I do that. Why was that written if Jesus said these words? Well, people explain that differently. Uh, Some people come across this way. If there's sin in your life, failure in life, that means you're still under condemnation and you have not been born again and you're still in enemy territory. And that has a certain effect on people. If you are seeking to serve the Lord and your sin brings that kind of response, what does that tend to make people do? Cover it up. And I'm not going to be open with people. I'm going to pretend everything is fine because I know that if I open up, I'm going to be marginalized. Other people say, well, sin is a believer's normal experience. It's just what we're like. And if, uh, if salvation is by grace, no amount of sin or sinlessness will make a difference. And we were never meant to live sinlessly, so it doesn't really matter. That's what some people would say. I don't think that's right either. I believe holiness does matter. Sometimes I believe the process is worth as much as the end result. I don't think it would be hard for God to make us sinless. and I, I believe we should pray for breaking of chains and freedom. And God has done it. He's taken away the drunkard's appetite and, and uh, helped people out of these bondages. And we should pray for that. But God doesn't always do it instantaneously. But He does provide us a method by which to do it. It's not an easy one, but it, there's a way we can take and instruments we can use in our lives to, for this. And I believe, even more important than instant sinlessness, is a growing love for righteousness and hatred for sin. And, and if we were instantly made sinless, maybe we wouldn't have that as much. But the more it costs us and the more we understand the price of it, we value freedom. Israel was in Egypt for many years. Any day, God could have taken them out. But their burden became, their bondage became burdensome and long until they cried under it. And uh, back in Genesis or Exodus, it says, They came, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham. Uh, Sometimes I think when our desire for freedom becomes that intense, uh, that's the first step towards spiritual freedom. Now freedom from bondage is not necessarily sinless perfection. I believe that freedom from bondage is the power to make sober choices restored. What was before an automatic reaction, a response, I can now say, is it worth it or isn't it? And when that's restored, then I can uh, make choices like I ought to. There's a couple of things I want to share tonight. What separates the victorious from the defeated? And I often wish that Scripture would point out a step by step method a one, two, three. Do this, this, and this, and it'll happen. But I believe this has more to do with relationship than with technique. And there's a couple of verses that I think are important to look at. One is 1 John 5.4 For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The key to victory is being born of God. And we talked about that one of these evenings. Maybe not as in depth as we could have. But 2,000 years ago, a person was born. And uh, he was full of the Spirit. He had a living relationship with his Father. When the day of temptation came, Satan offered him bread, and he said no. Satan offered him instant recognition, he said no. And uh, a shortcut to his kingdom, and he said no. Why could Satan not gain a foothold in his life? Well, there might have been different reasons, but the, the center one was that Jesus was born of God, and Satan was not going to overcome that. Then Jesus said, you must be born again. And the same overcoming spirit that Jesus had, we must have. If we would try to face Satan and his temptation without this inner reality of relationship with Christ, it's sort of like the seven sons of Sceva who came up to this demonized man and said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, come out of him. And he jumped on them and beat them up and left them bleeding and running out of the house. That's about as far as we would get. You can't study the technique. You can't learn the language and make it happen. Because Jesus is the only name he fears. In 1 John 4:4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now that sounds almost automatic. But I see two things in this verse, especially in John 15, where it talks about the vine and the branches and the need for a continual abiding relationship in Christ. The first thing I see in that picture is a, is a position. And if we're born in Christ, and we're born again, we're in the kingdom, we have that position. And we need to hold that position. It's a fixation, it's a dependence. But the second part of that is the flow of life that happens when we remain in Christ and have a, a relationship with Him that is reflected in prayer and in meditation and in time spent with Him. The first one is acceptance. And the second is ongoing life-giving grace to help us in our daily battles. And if that's what it takes to overcome, we must never leave the house without it. And uh, if we depend on our position and don't seek the ongoing relationship, we're being set up for deeper struggles. I'm I'm astounded sometimes... (laughs) I've tried to work with people that struggle, and I ask them, "How are you doing?" And well, they're struggling. Well, we all struggle sometimes. And if you ask them, uh, "Well, how's your, how's your prayer life? How's your devotional life? How are you doing in your time with the Lord?" Ah, oh, I just don't feel like it. Doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't make a difference. Well, what do you expect then? And it's true that sin takes away our appetite for God, but it's also true that seeking the Lord gives us strength. To resist sin, we need to be purposeful about this. In First John five eighteen, it says, "We know that whatsoever, whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not." Now that word "keepeth himself" it's not just a one side of the fair. We don't sit back and say, "Well, Lord, whenever you want to clean me up, go ahead, Lord. Whenever it's your time to." Uh, get me over this problem, feel free. But one thing we can do is deal with the sin that we know has been in our life. And that's why I told the children the duck story. As long as there's sin there that's unconfessed and undealt with, it's like an open access that Satan can use to control and influence and bring weakness into our life. And that's one thing we can do. And Scripture outlines how to do it. The repentance Uh, No backwards look at it. No nostalgia towards it. What we once did. Uh, Confession. Simply agreeing with God. And sometimes we struggle. I don't know if you do, but having done something wrong, when do I just confess it to the Lord and when do I include someone else in the confession process? You ever ask yourself that question? Sometimes I have. And there's some things that exist between me and God and that's God, is only He can forgive sin, But I've often found that if I keep struggling after that, it doesn't hurt to go to a trusted brother and say, listen, I just need to open up to somebody about this. Would you mind listening? It's not that He can forgive my sins. But here's a question. If God is an almighty God, why is it so easy to confess our sins to Him? And if our brethren struggle in the same way as we do, why is it so hard to confess to them? Uh... Sometimes I think we're deceiving ourselves a little bit. And then restitution is an important part of repentance. And these are ways that we can start pushing back against the bondage of sin. We need to deal with the practices of sin. Confessing past sin does nothing if we're continuing in the same practice or other things. Paul talks about spiritual strongholds, and I'm not sure... I understand all of that, but I believe there are some satanic footholds through long practice sin. I believe there's uh, deep-rooted sin issues there sometimes. I even would think that not all sin is created equally. Some types of sin would give Satan greater influence in our life than maybe others. I, uh, immorality is one example of that. I knew a man who became demonized through uh, relationships with prostitutes there in Guatemala. There's almost no sin so enslaving as, as that kind of sin. Uh, witchcraft. Meddling in supernatural powers that are not God's powers. Uh, there's all kinds of variations to that. I, that would des- deserve a message in itself. But um, Seeking for hidden information. Some people call it divining. Healing practices. Delving into occultism of any type. I believe what that does is open up the practitioner and the benefactor to some influence and uh, weakness that wouldn't have to be there and I believe there's spiritual lethargy and a deadening to spiritual things that can come through that type of involvement, uh, even music here's another whole message you can uh, but it it would astound you probably maybe you already know but Some of the producers of modern music, the kind of lifestyles they live and the kind of values they have and the kind of things they do. Why would we want to go feed at a trough like that if we want a a godly, victorious life? Uh, If we're concerned about spiritual victory, we need to fill our minds and lives with, with good things and not go feeding at those places. Our goal is to clean up the whole life and not leave access points. What's the point of closing all the windows and doors except the one back one? There's still access. Another thing that needs to be part of our, our push back against sin and our victorious Christian living is a cross-bearing attitude. Romans 6 says this, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. I like Romans 6. I like Romans 8. I don't really like Romans 7. Although I experienced what it's like to be there. If somebody said this. If you learn to live in Romans 6, that's where we die to ourself and carry our cross. We can skip Romans 7 and live in Romans 8. If we don't get that figured out, we're doomed to Romans 7 until we do. Uh, interesting study. But a cross-bearing attitude is simply a willingness to bow the demands of my flesh to the authority of Christ. For some, it's a willingness to identify with Christ. Some people find that hard, to walk down a city street, dressed like you dress, uh, giving out a track, letting people know where you stand on issues. Uh, some people find that hard. That Jesus bore his cross down the main street of Jerusalem for you, couldn't we carry one for him? It's an identification. It's a continual choice. The cross that Jesus carried was a choice. Every step toward Calvary was a choice. Every moment on the tr- cross was a choice. And every day, we, as we carry this cross, we know that this is the price of my communion with, with God. And am I willing to do it for Him? It's a continual battle, battle against sin. Uh, Paul said this about the cross. This is the, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. It's where I do battle with sin. It's where I grapple with my flesh. It's a symbol of my ongoing struggle with my lower nature. I met a man in Guatemala one time. He was a homeless person. But he had come from Honduras. And he was a believer. He was a new believer and he was an ex-drug addict. And he had come to Guatemala to find a better life. We tried to help him find some work and a place to live. But he would stop in just to see me and talk sometimes. And he told me a story. When he became a believer, he was... I forget if it was marijuana or probably cocaine user of some type. And every evening after work, he would come home and get his dose for the day. And and uh, But after he became a Christian, he knew that had to stop. And he would come home and at the normal time, he would have... Uh, taken his drugs this intense urging and, and craving would come over him and and he would start doing battle with it now some of you drink coffee so do i uh how would you feel if you quit for two months uh might be a good thing to try sometime but if you think that's hard try cocaine i mean don't try cocaine but the quitting is so much worse they he said every evening he would fast and pray and, and he would cry and he would kneel and, and do battle all evening against this thing. And the next day, come home from work and do it again. And the next day, do it again. And it went like that for a whole year until he finally felt he had victory over this thing. That's the price. And that's the method. And the cross that we bear is the price of spiritual health. Probably the greatest factor that comes to bear when we meet temptation is the simple question, what did I do last time? So there's a power in cumulative choices. I made this choice once, twice, three times, six, ten. The longer it goes, the more assured the next time I face it, I'm going to do the same thing. See, habits of righteousness foster righteousness. Righteousness. And habits of sin bind us into sin. And if we are habitually flesh-based decision makers, we typically do things because we like them. Uh, if it feels good, it looks good, it sounds good, it tastes good, and those, that's the basis for making choices, it erodes our ability to say no to ourselves. Sometimes I think that's one value in fasting, simply to learn to say no to ourselves. Because when the big test comes, and I'm used to saying yes to everything. I probably won't say no then. Because there's a power in these choices I've made all my life that just gratify myself. And you remember those things. Revelation 15:2 says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then that it had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. I love that picture. It's a picture of victory. This is a picture of all those that have gone through this life of doing battle against self and sin in the world, whatever that entails for you. Is there anything worth missing this for? This picture of on the sea of glass and victory? Is there any pleasure, any sin, any embarrassment, any withholding. And the question isn't, do I struggle? Because we all do. It's not, have I failed or am I perfect? None of us are. The question is, does Satan have an advantage in our life he shouldn't have? Am I a slave or am I free? That's the question you need to face. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you tonight again and thank you for giving us a method and a course and a way to be set free from sin. I thank you for the power of Christ. And I pray for the freedom that he can bring in my life and the life of each of these people. Help us experience what victory is like. And Lord, in the areas that we do battle with ourselves and we, we struggle and often fail, give us increasing victory, Lord, and give us a new hunger and thirst for righteousness and longing to please you. Work in our midst, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hesitate to give an invitation every night. I want to give you one brief opportunity in silence this time. If someone here just recognized that I, there, there's something in there that, that I need help with, uh, you've tried and, and tried and tried, and it seems like there's no forward progress And you would like to say, could somebody please give me some counsel here and pray with me here and and let me open up to you? Uh, Would you be willing to do that in a public way? As we sit here in silence, if you feel need like that, just stand where you are in recognition of that, and we'll try to find somebody to to pray with you and uh, walk with you.